The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 14 of the Lone Gummin Podcast. This is your boy Rob Clark coming at you, and that is a great punk cover of the uh, fabulous 90s tune, I Would Walk 500 Miles, and uh, yeah, that cover rocks. Today, we're going to look a little bit into New Orleans and, and, and uh, the goings-on there and into, and into Dallas, of course and see what we can tie together here. But before we get into the meat of the podcast here, I would like to thank everyone once again for listening. I just received an onslaught of new followers and uh, the listens have spiked. It's awesome. And everything's going great. And you're, I know you're listening, you're liking, you're sharing. So there's going to be more. You know, I can't believe I've already did 13 of these things, and uh, this is number 14. And before we get into what I want to talk about today, I'd like to thank a couple people um, for supporting me. And last week in the episode about fiction books on the assassination, or faction books, I should say, um, I put a call out about the book Strange Peaches. You know, and if anybody could could find it uh you know let me know send it my way and because i i'm really interested in, in in reading what this guy wrote and one man in particular answered the call and his name is mr leroy blevins and i really appreciate leroy getting that over to me and uh it's awesome and i know leroy listens and he's had nothing but kind words to say and he supports me and I know, just from being in the groups and everything, Leroy takes a lot of flack uh, for for some of his stuff that he does, and it's quite frankly unfounded because Leroy is one of the nicest guys that you're ever going to run across in the research community, and uh, whether you agree with him or not, you know, to to attack him for his research is just idiotic and and downright childish. You know, there's plenty of assholes and dicks and uh, bullies out there in the community and that push their theories and everything, but uh, that does not describe Leroy at all. He's one of the nicest guys you ever you ever run into, and he's done nothing but support me. So I'm gonna, you know, and I've I've uh, 
been supporting Leroy for a while now, and and I will continue to do so. Um, and he just released two books on the assassination. One is called Thirteen Shots, uh, you know, where he lays out, you know, how he thinks the assassination went went down, and also a colorized uh, pictures of the assassination book. And both books are available on Amazon.com. And like I said, whether you agree with him or not, the man is a hard worker. Okay, it is a Herculean task to put out books and do do the research and colorize these pictures. And it's not often, you know, that that somebody you know writes a book on the JFK assassination. And as nice of a guy as Leroy is, I mean, you can't help but like the guy. And he's not just a JFK researcher, you know. I, I've I've uh, I've followed him into other areas of research because um, the the things interest me too. Um, he's worked on uh, the Patterson Gimlin film, you know, from the '60s about Bigfoot. He's done some great work on that. Uh, he's looked into Noah's Ark, and he's actually found I think three different arcs that are on Mount Ararat. And uh, also the Zodiac Killer. Um, he's the only person that I've ever seen or heard of that uses the Halloween cards sent by the Zodiac to actually decipher the Zodiac's real name. And he's all he did was do what the Zodiac told him to do. And he came up with a name that I've never heard before ever posited uh, concerning the Zodiac Killer. And... I would encourage everybody out there to check out Leroy's stuff on because he's done radio various radio interviews on this other stuff too, and uh, his work is out there on YouTube. And uh, so please go support Leroy. He couldn't be a nicer guy, and he's done nothing but support me. And that's what we're supposed to do here is uh, you know support each other. That because. Uh, you know, I know people get downright vile and and dismissive, and it's it's wrong. It, it shouldn't happen. And Leroy's at home in my group, and anything he wants to post there is fine with me. And and I won't let uh, I won't let him be attacked in in my group. At least I know that. Um. So Leroy, good luck with your books, buddy. Like I said, you can find them both on Amazon.com. And uh, somebody else I'd like to. Uh, put the spotlight on and has supported me is Gail Nix Jackson. She has a new book coming out on the assassination. It's called Orville Nix, The Lost JFK Assassination Film. And she's having a release party next week. I believe it's on the 26th of June. And it's at uh, 1026 North Beckley, Oswald's Rooming House, which is cool as hell. So if you're in the Dallas area or you're close by, Please, please, please go support Gail and her book. Um, I mean, you can be a part of history. I mean, how how cool would that be? And uh, I just saw somewhere on Facebook today that, that Buell Frazier is supposed to be there, and I'm sure a couple other Dallas luminaries are going to be there as well. Um, so please support Gail. And uh, she's, she's turned into a great little researcher. You know, I've seen her blossom in the, in the, in the groups. Um, so please go support Gail because it's a very important thing that, that her grandfather's uh, lost film be found. 
Uh, all we have are copies that are most probably altered. Um, you know, they're still valuable. They do show some things, but to have the original back in her family would mean the world to her. And I know her grandfather would be proud of her and what she's doing. So please support Gail. And once her book's out, I'm sure it'll be on Amazon or, or through her website. Um, you know, feel free to support her too. She's a supporter of the Lone Government Podcast. And uh, I'm going to support her too and encourage everyone else to. And Gail, good luck with your book. And God bless you. And uh, good luck, Leroy, with your books. And uh, you guys keep doing what you're doing. Today, I'd like first to talk a little bit about Mr. Guy Bannister. And the reason I want to talk about Guy Bannister is because <clears throat> something's always bothered me a little bit about his death being really one of one of the first. Um, he died on June 6th, 1964 of a coronary thrombosis, which is basically a blood clot that has been stuck in a vessel in his heart. You know, basically amounts to a heart attack. Um, and of course, Bannister wasn't a young, a young buck, but <clears throat> he was a very active man, uh, in shape, uh, and we know, of course, that one of the CIA's favorite tactics is uh, to take people out as a, as a heart attack. You know, make things look like a heart attack. You know, like David Ferry. You know, he's found in bed, apparent, apparently dead of a heart attack. And, uh, but with his autopsy report, you know, there's a report of a small incision in the roof of his mouth. And, of course, if you follow the trajectory from the roof of your mouth straight up, uh, you're going to get into your brain. And probably not going to leave a lot of blood, a lot of traces. You know, it's a very easy way or a creative way to kill somebody because that part of the mouth is not really visible you know, unless you're really closely inspecting things. And <clears throat> as far as I know, we don't have an autopsy report on Guy Bannister. You know, so of course there may have been, you know, needle marks or puncture marks, but we really, we really don't know. And it's just suspicious that as much as Guy Bannister's fingerprints are all over New Orleans and all over Lee Harvey Oswald, that he's one of the first to die. Because... <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, surrounding the assassination, <clears throat> and, you know, people know that this Warren Commission is coming, and there's an investigation coming, and people are going to be talked to that the people that knew the most, or knew things they shouldn't have known, or were talking about things they shouldn't be talking about, were taken out. Uh, it's quite evident surrounding this case, you know, everywhere you look, people, people have done these lists, you know, of, of 100 plus witnesses surrounding the case that died under mysterious circumstances. And the odds don't lie. You know, this, that just doesn't happen normally. So I've always been a little suspect of Guy Bannister. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
you know, this guy had his fingers in a lot of pies, and I don't mean the good kind of pies. Uh, he had ties to the Minutemen, the uh, John Birch Society, which pops up again as being connected to uh, General Walker and uh, Lauren Hall and all those guys. Uh, the Louisiana Committee on Un-American Activities, and he published a the Louisiana Intelligence Digest. Okay. And he also worked closely with the Cuban Democratic Revolutionary Front, the Anti-Communist League of the Caribbean, Friends of Democratic Cuba Committee. Um, and he was a key government liaison for sponsored anti-communist activities in Latin America. Now what all that means is, this guy hated commies. Okay? And he hunted them down. And he liked to out them. And he liked to report his findings back to the FBI. Okay, because before he was in New Orleans as a private investigator, he was in the FBI for 20 years. He joined the FBI in 1934, which is very early uh, in its inception. And uh, he knew Hoover personally. Uh, he, was president, or he was present for the killing of John Dillinger. And... He was the SAIC, which is a special agent in charge of Chicago, before he retired. And so he was very entrenched in, in FBI and FBI lore. And, of course, being in Chicago, he would have likely known a lot of the mafia ties of, of Chicago, uh, being the special agent in charge of the FBI in Chicago. And, of course, we, we time to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee because in New Orleans, the Newman Building, which is what it was called there at 531 Lafayette Street, which is where Guy Bannister's office was, well, the same building just around the corner had a different address, you know, leading to a different door of the building at 544 Camp Street, which we know was stamped on Oswald's flyers. Now, after Bannister's death, his wife and his secretary, Delphine Roberts, would both testify. Well, actually, Delphine Roberts would, would testify to seeing Oswald in the building and him being an associate of Bannister's. And also seeing Fair Play for Cuba Committee flyers in the building. And said that Oswald had an office on the second floor of the building. And his wife, Bannister's wife, after his death... Uh, got a lot of his files and everything and, and there was a lot of uh, Cuban activities and uh, free, uh, fair play for Cuba committee flyers in his belongings as well and Guy Bannister and David Ferry both worked for G. Ray Gill who was the attorney for Carlos Marcello who was of course the mafia boss there in New Orleans as did Oswald's uncle Eugene Moret. Okay, so it's very likely, you know, that all these guys knew each other and worked together. And the Newman building is actually very close to a lot of other buildings in New Orleans, including the FBI offices, the ONI offices, the CIA offices, Riley Coffee Company, uh, the Trademark. You know, it's all within walking distance of each other. So Bannister's office was like right smack dab in the middle of everything going on in New Orleans at the time. And of course we knew we know 
that David Ferry knew Lee Harvey Oswald from their time in the Civil Air Patrol, of course. And when Oswald came back to New Orleans, of course, after he returned from Russia, he went to Texas, stayed with his brother for a little while, and moved to Dallas for a little while. But then he came back to New Orleans, okay? And I think this is when that he got hooked up through Ferry with Bannister because what Oswald was doing in New Orleans, okay, because I don't believe for a second that he was pro-Castro. I don't believe he was a communist lover either. And from previous podcasts, we know, you know, that he was likely sent to Russia under Operation Redskin to, as an agent of the United States government, okay? So on his return, you know, he had the perfect pedigree, or should I say the perfect cover, <clears throat> to do a lot of these, to really get deep and, and go be above and beyond for Guy Bannister to out some of these communists. And with his background, he could easily be believed and perceived to be pro-Castro. And of course, him being tied into Bannister's office and that address being on several of the flyers and with the activities that we know Bannister was doing. I mean, he even had programs at Tulane and LSU where he would have informants come back and tell him about uh, communist activities on the campus, which he would log and, and report to the FBI. Now, I'm sure there was a threat level, you know, like 10 being most most severe of, of a threat, you know, down to like a 1, which is maybe somebody said something in passing and uh, not, really, not really sure that they're going to act on anything. But you got to remember, back then, you know, the big red bear communism was the enemy okay and the Russians were the enemies Castro was the enemy uh, and, and Bannister was very very adamant about outing these people but he, he, he did he did work closely you know with some of these anti Castro Cuban groups and definitely supported uh, their guerrilla activity and likely worked with, of course, David Ferry and, and, and others in, in training some of these people and supplying arms for these people and uh, supplying transportation for these people, you know, to get to Cuba to fight, you know, of course, Castro. Um, Jack Martin, who worked for Guy Bannister, uh, as we know from the famous scene in the Oliver Stone film, the evening of the 22nd, they had went to the bar and were, were, were drinking a little bit. And when they went back to Bannister's office, uh, Bannister noticed there were some files missing. And he found it odd that, uh, you know, Jack had wanted to go out for drinks and basically get Bannister out of the office for a little while. But while they were gone, somebody broke into his office and stole some files. And uh, he, started, he started pistol whipping Jack Martin. And Jack said, uh, what are you going to do, kill me like you did Kennedy? Which uh, basically sent Bannister into a rage, and he beat the living shit out of Jack Martin and put him in the hospital. And when, when Jack Martin was uh, interviewed by the FBI, he said that Ferry definitely knew Oswald from the Civil Air Patrol. Oswald was definitely working for Guy Bannister, as was Ferry. And that Ferry drove to Dallas that 
that evening of the 22nd to fly the assassins out of the country. And this is coming straight from Jack Martin, Associated Guy Bannister. Um, and also from tying it back into a little faction uh, from the last podcast, Guy Bannister is present in uh, James Elroy's 1995 novel, American Tabloid, and also its sequel, The Cold 6000, which uh, is basically, you know, a, a fiction, fact-based uh, retelling of, uh, his, his, of his version of how the assassination of Kennedy went down. And Guy Bannister plays a prominent role in both novels. Uh, so give those a read. I haven't read them yet personally, but they are on my list. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of thing, definitely check them out. Um, now, to tie this in a little bit to Dallas, <clears throat> we know that Carlos Marcello's lawyer, G. Ray Gill, had an office in the uh, Pierre Marquette building, uh, which, you know, housed a lot of different offices. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, a man named Jim Braden had an office just down the hall from G. Ray Gill. And what's interesting about that is uh, Jim Braden's story. Now, I've read through the 160 pages of Jim Braden's declassified HSCA testimony. And there's really not a whole lot there except for a lot of denying, deny, 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 and cover stories. Uh, you know, Braden came from L.A. a couple days before the assassination to Dallas uh, in the company of a couple other people. And, of course, we know that Lorraine Hall, about a week before the assassination, picked up a rifle, uh, Jerry Hemming's rifle, from L.A. and came to Dallas. Um... And after he got to Dallas, he stayed at the Cabana Hotel with uh, his ex-con buddy, Morgan Brown. And there was a lot of interesting people staying at the Cabana Hotel. Uh, one of them being a guy by the name of Larry Myers, who is an associate of Jack Ruby's from Chicago. And Mr. Myers uh, was down in Dallas for the Pepsi Bottlers Convention that was going on there. And Jack Ruby actually went to the Cabana Hotel on the evening of the 21st, the night before the assassination, and had dinner with uh, Lawrence Myers. And, uh, of course, we know Jim Braden was staying at the hotel at this time, as were alleged to be a lot of other people, like Sturgis and Lorenz, and the list goes on and on. Um... And what's interesting is uh, David Ferry had called Larry Myers uh, the day Oswald left for Mexico. And for Jack Ruby and Jim Braden, uh, I mean, David Ferry, for Jack Ruby and David Ferry to know the same man, Larry Myers, in Chicago, and call them 
you know, several times before the assassination. And it just so happens this guy comes to Dallas a couple days before the assassination. It's a little odd to me. Um, Myers was technically what you call a traveling salesman. Uh, which is the perfect cover for CIA people because, you know, they travel a lot. They really have no home base. They kind of operate on the on the fringes and can basically come and go as they please, wherever they please, and aren't really suspicious. Um, uh, Jim Braden is also alleged to be the courier between Traficante, Marcelo Giancana, and Meyer Lansky. As in, you know, if these guys needed to communicate off the grid, they would do it through Jim Braden, who would personally courier letters, guns, drugs, anything at all, anything illegal, uh, you know, they would get him to do it. So, you know, that tells you right there that they have a lot of trust in this man, Jim Braden. And, uh, of course, Jim Braden is an ex-con. He had a lot of arrests. Uh, throughout his life and he pops up in a lot of places he's got ties to of course chicago la dallas new orleans miami atlanta he's all over the place and uh at the right time he was also about a uh less than a mile away from uh, bobby kennedy when he got killed i mean what are the odds of that happening uh you know, he's less than a mile away from JFK, supposedly, when he's killed. And he's less than a mile away from Bobby Kennedy when he's killed. In two different states, in two different cities. Separated by thousands of miles in, in many years. I mean, the odds of that are pretty astounding. Um, now, Jim Braden didn't, did not want to talk to uh, Jim Garrison. He actually went to uh, Edwin Meese, who was in the Reagan administration but he also worked for reagan when he was governor of california uh to try to to halt the extradition to new orleans but he ended up going anyway and uh he didn't actually end up you know in the court but he did talk to and was deposed by jim garrison and he said a couple interesting things to garrison such as uh that, of course, he had nothing to do with it, um, which is basically what he told the HSCA, uh, you know, that he was just an, an independent oil man, you know, helping, trying to get some business going. He said he had an appointment with H.L. Hunt at 1230 on the 22nd. Um, but oddly, he wasn't pressed about it because um, he, he, he tells this story of... Uh, and then waking up, having breakfast at the hotel, and making his way downtown to see his parole officer, and then getting caught up in the motorcade, and uh, never really actually trying to make it to see Hunt for this meeting. Uh, and he heard, you know, the commotion going on, and heard something happen. He made his way to Dealey Plaza, and he heard the, he heard the news that the president had been shot. So he wanted to call his parents back home in California and let them know what happened. And he supposedly talked to a lady that said, yeah, there's a phone in this building here, that which is, the, you know, the Dow Tech's building. And an elevator operator in there 
thought it was a little suspicious and he notified some police to come get this guy because he didn't belong in the building now I've read I've heard conflicting reports about the military intelligence officer uh, James Powell uh, some people say he was he got uh, of course locked in to the, the Texas School Book Depository after it was cordoned off but I've also heard that he was with Jim Braden in the Dow Tech building when he was arrested. And maybe he could have done both. Maybe uh, he was with Braden, and of course, Braden didn't have any ID to prove who he was, but maybe uh, Powell did. And he flashed his ID and, uh, of course, got out of having to go downtown and uh, be arrested. But. Uh, it was Jim Braden who identified himself as an independent oil operator when he was arrested in the Dow Tex. It was not George Bush. Okay, do you hear me, John Hankey? Do you hear me, Richard Hook? It was not George Bush. It was Jim Braden. Um, and now the author and former CIA guy, Robert Morrow, states that uh, it was Mar Carlos Marcello who used Bannister and Ferry uh, to, you know, to train these uh, anti-Castro-Cuban exiles in these, uh, in these camps there at Lake Pontchartrain and get them ready for raids and, and teach them you know, how to do military maneuvers and things like that. And he also claims that uh, one of Ferry's close associates, Eladio DeVille, who was head of the DRE, contacted him and ordered four walkie-talkies that could not be detected on uh, regular bands they're, you know so that their communications couldn't be monitored which he did supply and what that means okay because we know DeVale and Ferry were pretty much murdered on the same same day there in 1967 um which is, a, of course, suspicious in and of itself. Um, but it's just more ties back to this New Orleans, these Anacastro Cubans, to David Ferry and Guy Bannister and Clay Shaw <clears throat> and all these various guys. And interesting fact, uh, Loran Hall told Jim Garrison that he was offered $50,000 to kill Kennedy and turned it down. And we know from Doug Campbell's excellent podcast, The Dallas Action, uh, episode 12, I believe, that Lauren Hall told the HSCA that he received twenty or $30,000 from Sam Giancana as a here-you-go money. He wouldn't really specify what it was for, <clears throat> but you could probably do this. At least double or triple that amount, uh, because I'm sure he was lowballing the figure uh, by a bit, but I don't think he lowballed it enough, because that was a lot of money in those days. Even twenty or $30,000 was a lot of money in those days. I mean, equate it, I'd say 10 times, so it'd be like two or $300,000 this time, you know. In today's uh, standards, 
So if he's lowballing it by half, you know, you can figure he got anywhere from half a million to three quarters of a million, maybe even a million for doing the deed. Uh, and if the money did come from Giancana, you know, I don't know who the money came from above Giancana. Of course, Hall said it was the CIA that he was guessing is who was paying. Um, it tells you a little bit. And please go check out Doug's excellent podcast, The Dallas Action. Uh, he's he's getting phenomenal. I mean, he's always been phenomenal, but it's it's he's he, he's sniffing down the right path, and he's he's getting ready to get these guys back in the corner, and uh, it's going to be a corner that they can't get out of. And he's painting a uh, fabulous narrative over there, at Dallas Action. <clears throat> and interesting that a fellow by the name of William Morris, while he was uh, visiting. Oswald's grave on the third anniversary met a military intelligence officer there who was also at Oswald's grave on the third anniversary of his death. Uh, a man that he called Agent X. Of course, he didn't want to say his real name, or I don't know if the guy even gave him his real name. But uh, of course, they were there and they started chatting. Well, Agent X claimed to William Morris that. Loran Hall was in Dallas as part of the hit squad. And he was the one that got the kill shot on Kennedy. And that it was all coordinated by a man named Eugene Hale Brading. Which, as we know, his name was changed to Jim Braden. Uh, which is very interesting when you think about it. When you think about all the connections... Uh, and just like Doug stated in his podcast, Lauren Hall came into a lot of money. You know, he ended up uh, paying eighty thousand dollars for a house, cash. Uh, you know, a couple years after the assassination. Well, Jim Braden had a get-rich story as well. He amazingly struck it rich in the oil business uh, when the well that he had supposedly struck it rich. And it made him a very rich man. And his story was, of course, uh, was was told in this book in the uh, early 70s. And the reason that he wanted to appear before the HSCA was to, quote, clear his name and any involvement he may have had in the Kennedy assassination. Because too many people were tying him to it. And he wanted to set the record straight according to him but if you ask me people this guy was key okay you know it ties him in with knowing of course Guy Bannister and Jack Ruby and all these people you know and you've heard of and the mafia guys and these mercenaries with Interpen and uh, these Cuban exiles. And it just all adds up into a real pretty, pretty picture. Uh, because a lot of people have been trying to figure this thing out for a long time. And a, a lot of researchers, like Doug says, outrun the evidence. But when you when you strip all the way all the horse shit and 
all the speculation and all the fantasies. Uh, you know, you get down to a bare bones picture of exactly how this thing happened and how it went down and who was involved and why they were involved in it. And, you know, Kennedy's stance on communism was very soft, especially after the Bay of Pigs and, and not wanting to uh, invade Cuba and in his relationship with Russia. You know, he was, he was viewed by these generals as being very, very soft on communism. And, and these generals back then were, of course, pushing the whole communist agenda. You know, that's the boogeyman. That's the people we got to be worried about. That's the people we got to be scared of. You know, they're the enemy. We need to kill them at all costs before they get us type of thing. And Kennedy just wasn't buying it. And uh, he didn't believe that at all. And when you dig a little deeper, you know, the same names keep popping up. The same names. You know. And I believe it trickled down from these generals. Down through military intelligence, which of course had ties with the ONI and CIA. And which trickled down out into the mafia. and Because if you're going to hit the President of the United States, if you're going to kill him... You know, it's very likely you're not going to use your own guys. Uh, you're going to have plausible deniability. If anybody was to get caught, if anything went wrong, uh, it had to be be able to be blamed on somebody else, some other faction, in case your plans fell apart, you know, to make Lee Harvey Oswald the patsy. And I'm not saying Oswald was innocent in all this. Uh, you know, he may have known what was what was coming. He may have known what was going on, but I don't think he knew that he was in fact being set up to, to take the fall for the assassination. And <laughs> interestingly enough, and this popped up on Facebook last night, Ralph Sinkay. The big giant turd that he is. Of course, he's no well noted for his Oswald in the doorway theory that's been debunked 20 ways from Sunday for the past 50 years. Um, actually got caught red-handed, blatantly stealing another researcher's work and claiming it as his own. And <laughs> couldn't happen to a nicer guy. You know, that just tells you the type of guy that he is and the type of guy that I've been preaching that he is. He's a fraud, people. He's a snake oil salesman. He's not a doctor. He's His whole life is, a, is one lie piled on top of another lie. You know, and his, all of his work is not his. I mean, you know, to come out 50 years later and, and, and claim Oswald in the doorway as your own work is is in itself ridiculous. And uh, what we're talking about here is the claim that Bill Shelley was captured uh, in the background when Oswald was handing out his leaflets in New Orleans. And of course the guy does resemble Bill Shelley. Uh, you know, of course clothes mean nothing, but 
uh, you know, he had the same suit and tie on, which Shelly liked to wear. And he's got the same pompadour haircut, the same kind of highlights in his hair. Because he didn't have, you know, straight black hair or straight brown hair. You know, he had hair that was, had like blonde, blondish streaks in it, I guess you could say. Uh, that, that were very noticeable when the light was shining on him. And you know, we see another photographs of Bill Shelley, like when they were being taken down to the uh, station with Bonnie Ray and Danny Arce, and you know which, whether or not it is Bill Shelley, uh, you know if it was, I mean that opens up a whole new can of holy shit uh, when it comes to figuring out exactly what was going on and would lend credence to my theory that uh you know the whole the whole damn texas school book depository there on elm street was a, a false construct in order to uh, accommodate uh the patsy in a you know a high-rise building on the parade route because it always seemed a little odd to me you know of course that that the the TSB didn't move part of their operation over to this Elm Street building uh, in August of 1963. And really, the only two people doing most of the work there were Buell Frazier and Lee Oswald. Uh, you know, the rest of the people you hear about there, like Jack Doherty and Billy Lovelady and uh, Charles Gibbons and all them, were on, they were working on replacing the floor, the floors. You know, on on in the uh, TSBD, they weren't really doing a lot of work when it when it pertains to the book part of it. Um, that was mostly Frazier and Oswald, who were relatively new hires. You know, Frazier was hired at the beginning of July, I think it was, or I mean September, around September 9th, about six weeks before Oswald was hired, and. We know from reports that the, the TSBD had laid a lot of people off. And you'd think that they would get their jobs back before they would hire new people. But that wasn't the case. And it's just all real interesting. You know, of course, Shelley was in the uh, in World War II and, and I think in Korea. And when he left, he went to work for the defense industry and was very possibly CIA. And I know he started working for the TSBD in the uh, late 40s. And, you know, it's hard to imagine that, of course, you know, this wasn't planned since the late 40s because that would be ridiculous. But to be called back into action for something else maybe that was convenient, I mean, for that to be Shelley... In New Orleans would be a major, major, major coup. And I'm not saying that the picture proves anything one way or the other, but I'm just saying it would be cool and amazing and crazy if it was true. But the point of this was to tell you that uh, David Josephs, who was, was not, he's not a new researcher, but he's kind of new to the Facebook groups. You know, he's been on a lot of the forums for many, many years. He's been doing, uh, great work in the in the facebook groups here lately 
he's an injection of uh, fresh ideas and, and, and new perspectives, and I love it. And he's a nice guy. And he is the one that I saw the collage from first. And then miraculously, a couple of days later, Ralph C.K. wants to claim it as his own on his blog and in, in every Facebook group he's part of. And he even states on his blog that I found it. And I'm going to post all of this stuff up on the Facebook page. So you can see it with your own eyes and, and judge for yourself the character of this piece of crap K. But uh, that is about going to do it for today. So please, please, please check out my buddy Doug's podcast, The Dallas Action. Okay? And we're going to have uh, a couple new things planned for you here real soon. Um, some friends of the podcast are going to be are going to be uh, joining us, and we're going to be getting bigger. Our family's going to be growing. We're going to be doing new big things, and just stay tuned for all that. But check him out. Uh, get on the Facebook page. Give it a like. That's where you're going to find everything we talk about here in the podcast. And I've, like I said before, I streamlined uh, the uh, Spreaker page, so everything's easy to find. Just click on my info. And the Facebook page link's right there. You can email me. The, the, the Gmail link is right there. Let me know how it's going. What's up? And thank you again for listening. Episode 14, In the Can, To the Satellite, To Your Ears, Rob Clark. Carl's Jr.'s new guacamole double cheeseburger is only 299 bucks. You forgot the decimal? Only 299 bucks. Not decibel, decimal. The guacamole double cheeseburger is only $2.99 at Carl's Jr. Oops. Available for a limited time. Price of participation may vary. Tax not included. Carl's Jr.'s new guacamole double cheeseburger is only 299 bucks. You forgot the decimal? Only 299 bucks. Not decibel, decimal. The guacamole double cheeseburger is only $2.99 at Carl's Jr. Oops. Available for a limited time. Price of participation may vary. Tax not included.